And I thought it would be good if we as a congregation could read it together. So let's read the Word of God together. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the Word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen. It's cold outside, isn't it? I think it's about, what, 30 degrees or something like that, maybe a little less. Um, I don't know about you, but I grew up outside of Philadelphia and also partly in Seoul, Korea. And so until my family and I moved here in 2006, I've lived in a pretty cold areas, most recently in Boston, uh, Ipswich, Massachusetts. And right around the time of Christmas, there's something that kind of hits me poignantly. And in the last 10 years or so, whenever it got cold in wintertime, I remember one mom, my mom used to say, whenever it got cold, she would worry about the homeless. And she would worry about the fact that for some during Christmas time, it's not all joy and joviality and mirth and gift giving. As we look to the Word of God, before we do, I'd like to um, quote a song lyric from this, uh, I think, pretty popular band called 21 Pilots. Um, they have a song, new song, I think, called Heathens. All my friends are heathens, take it slow. Wait for them to ask you who you know. Please don't make any sudden moves. You don't know half of the abuse. We don't deal well with we don't deal with outsiders very well. They say newcomers have a certain smell. I don't know about you, when I first heard this song, uh, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, and watched the video, it kind of like really blew me away. Particularly, you don't know half of the abuse. As we think about the advent of Jesus Christ, as we think about the sermon that he gave on the mount, we have to remember that Jesus embraced the abuse that will be heaped upon him. Abuse upon his integrity and his essence and identity. And it is in his name that we gather together to worship. Yes, we may not know half of the abuse, but what we are called to do and be is to rally around the one who took upon the supreme abuse upon himself to set us free to love and to serve. So in that spirit, if you would join with me in a word of prayer before we look to the word, that would be great. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your supreme gift of sacrifice. Amid great music, amid great laughter, and gifts exchanged and given and received, there are many of us, even inside the sanctuary right now, for whom these words may ring hollow. We feel bad, yet at the same time, we have to recall the words of our Lord, who said, what is impossible with men and women is possible with God. So we pray that you will continually help us to remember those whose stories and sadness and sorrows and abuses we only know, not even half of them. Lord, do your work among us today as we look to you now. In your name, amen. amen. Um, my name is Paul Lim. For those of you who don't know me, I serve here um, part-time and serve at Vanderbilt University. 
So here I serve as the uh, scholar in residence. I'm still trying to figure what that you know figure out what that means. That means I preach about six times a year, and I usually lead worship about as many times, if not a little bit more, and then lead adult Sunday school classes about half the year. My daytime job I teach history of Christianity at Vanderbilt University, and it's been both these things that have brought so much synergy for me, and um, so it's always a great privilege to open up the Word of God. So today's passage, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, short and impactful. Kurt Vonnegut made this observation about the way some Christians have much greater attachment to the Ten Commandments as a summary of the Christian faith than the Sermon on the Mount. So let's take a listen. For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard any of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in the courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. End quote. I want to hasten to add that Vonnegut was not a friend of evangelical Christianity, yet he, along with Gandhi, Tolstoy, and innumerable others, found something alluring, something intriguing, and something transformative about the Sermon on the Mount. Interestingly enough, in his autobiography, Vonnegut, well aware of the contradictory nature of this term, called himself Christ-worshipping agnostic. Then, at least for me, it raises the stakes even higher as we ask ourselves this question during this Advent season. What on earth did Jesus talk about in his most famous sermon? And what is it about this particular discourse that so many people found it so irresistible and attractive, as many of us do today? Today's sermon is the fifth sermon in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Furthermore, this is the third Sunday of Advent. Juxtaposing these two things, the Sermon on the Mount specifically, this beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled with what the Advent stands for. I'm hoping that we will be fed and filled, while this act of feeding and filling will create within us a greater uh, hunger and thirst for the real food and drink that only the one who has experienced real hunger and thirst can provide. I don't have a lot of time this morning, so let's plunge right into this water of Scripture, which, as I've heard a Sri Lankan pastor friend of mine explain one time, the Bible is simultaneously shallow enough so that elementary school kids will play in it and enjoy it immensely and believe that they understand it intimately, yet deep enough so that the most erudite and profound biblical scholars and scholars in theology cannot reach the bottom of this reservoir of truth, beauty, and goodness. So let's take a look at this verse one more time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I hope you can remember it by the end of our service today. What are the key words for this verse? I think there are four. First, we see hunger. Second, we see thirst. Thirdly, we see righteousness. Fourthly and finally, we see filled or satisfied. I also want us to think about Jesus the one who spoke these words. Was he ever hungry? Was he ever thirsty? Did he understand what it means to have material um, destitution? Did he know what it meant for him to be not filled? Did he understand, how did he understand this whole concept of righteousness? 
I also want us to think about the first century audience. What did these words, hunger, thirst, righteousness, mean to them? What about the word, concept, and reality of getting filled or getting satisfied? Relatedly, I want us to think about what these words mean to us here in 2016. Of these four words, in my opinion, hunger, thirst, righteousness, and filled, I would say that the key word among them is righteousness. So one of the ways to think about this sermon is to look at it as a question. Whose righteousness, which thirst to quench? With a question mark. One more word about Advent and how this series is entirely apropos for Advent is like this. Among other things, whether looking at various catalogs or commercials, we know that the season of Advent has a lot to do with buying and selling, gifting and receiving, right? I mean, I bet you some families after the service and after lunch or even before lunch will head to, you know, maybe Opryland or, you know, some Green Hills Mall or Cool Springs Mall and buy things for the holidays. Perhaps you're saying, well, I've already done it on Amazon.com. Maybe you have. So. But this is the season of giving and receiving for many families. In other words, it is a season of desire. We desire things. We want things. You ask kids, what do you want for Christmas, right? That is kindling and rekindling this kind of desire. Some kids will say, I would want whatever it is, you know, new app or new phone, or some people might say, I want this, that, and other. There is this sense of desire. In other words, it is a season of desire and intensification and reintensification of that desire. So let's come back and ask ourselves this question. What do we desire? Not only for Christmas, but for life. What do you really want or need from this life? What must we have absolutely and non-negotiably without which our life will be an abject failure? What are some of the things that we desire? Obviously, what Jesus does is puts it in a parlance that we can all understand. No matter whether you're coming from an ancient cultural context or contemporary cultural context, food and drink are the, the fundamental elements of our survival and existence. And Jesus puts it like that to communicate something truly basic and profound to the first century audience, as well as to the readers in the 21st century context. What are you hungering after? What are you thirsting after? And what we will do is to think about what we hunger after and thirst after and combine it in a concept of righteousness, because one way of looking at righteousness is this, that righteousness is something that will give us a sense of security, something like a sense of serenity, pride and joy, and meaning in who we are in this way. So, to put it in the language of Jesus, the master teacher, will walk the talk into Calvary, what do you thirst and hunger after? How do you try to get your thirst quenched and hunger satisfied? And put it differently, whose righteousness, did you hear that? Whose righteousness are you really seeking to protect and preserve and propagate? So for this sermon, this is actually hopefully a pretty good relief for, uh, for some of you. There are only two points in this sermon. Last sermon I preached here, I had four points, and normally I, just, I have three points, but today I just have two. So some of us, that should make you giddy with joy. <laughs> two points. The first point is intrinsic righteousness as idolatry. The second point is alien righteousness as identity. 
Okay, these are kind of a bit of mouthful, so we'll have to unpack them. But first point is intrinsic human righteousness as idolatry. Intrinsic human righteousness as idolatry and alien divine righteousness as identity. So let's go right to the first point. Intrinsic righteousness as idolatry. I'm taking a slightly different approach to this verse today, I must confess. I want us to look at it in two ways. First, at face value. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled or satisfied. But secondly, what about looking at it from the opposite angle, right? Rather than being blessed, right? What if it'll be like this? Cursed are those who hunger and thirst for unrighteousness, for they will be empty. I realize that most of us like to think positively, and we don't think of it that way, but I think the obverse could equally be true. We need to really reckon with, indeed, wrestle with what that might mean. Not blessed are those who hunger and thirst after unrighteousness, for they will be empty. Could that be true? Is that, in fact, true? So, as I said earlier, for all of humanity, hunger and thirst we do have this hunger and thirst for righteousness, what we deem to be the most important thing. Righteousness is the thing that gives you that identity, something that gives you that joy, something that gives you the reason for existing. That is what we call righteousness, and we'll have a lot more to say about that. So does that, the question is, does that righteousness, intrinsic human righteousness, fill you for real? The first point about intrinsic righteousness as idolatry can be best explained, I think, in this profoundly philosophical text of the last century, written by Dr. Seuss. I asked around, and not many of you know this story, so, I, you know, do you know the story called The Sneetches? S-N-E-E-T-C-H-E-S? Anyone know? Can you put your hand up? Okay, some people know. I'm glad. For kids who are 18 and under who have not known this story, it's available both as a PDF file as well as on YouTube. I want you to watch it today or before this Christmas season is over because this, that story will teach you something tremendous about where or on what we place our righteousness. Allow me to quote from the beginning part of Dr. Seuss's classic, The Sneetches. Now the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain belly sneeches had none upon stars. Those stars weren't so big, they were really so small, you might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star belly sneeches would brag, we are the best kind of sneechy on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they would snort, we will have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they hiked right on past them without even talking. When the star-bellied children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You could only play if your bellies had stars, and the plain belly children had none upon stars. When the star-bellied sneeches had frankfurter roasts, or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain belly sneeches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near. And that's how they treated them year after year. Sounds a little bit depressing, doesn't it? Year after year, if you didn't have a belly, a star on your belly, you are not part of the cool crowd. You didn't have the righteousness. For the star belly sneeches, they were righteous. They had something to take deep, deep pride in. But guess what? There is some guy named Sylvester 
McMonkey McBean, who shows up with this huge contraption. And you know what he advertises? He tells these kind of empty-bellied snitches, those without stars, and says, you know what, if you give me $10, you go through this machine, and when you're done with it, you will come out with a star on your belly, that you'll be righteous. And guess what? In droves, all of them go through the process, and out they come with a star on their belly, and they rush to those who had stars in their bellies and says, look, 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 you ought to treat us the same. It created a pandemonium among those star belly snitches. They said, wait a minute, we cannot have equality. We are superior to them. We will not allow them to think that they are equal to us. So what do they do? Sylvester shows up and he says, guess what, folks? I got a remedy to your, the quandary. And the remedy to your quandary is, if you go through this machine after paying $20, what this machine will do is, after you're done, you will not have a star on your belly anymore. Because you know what? You got to be distinct somehow. So after they go through the machine, guess what? Those snitches who used to have stars now don't have stars. And then they come back to those with newly found stars on their belly snitches and says, look, 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 we're still better than you. You see, the story is like this. They go back and forth and they end up spending all of their fortune. And Sylvester McMonkey McBean goes off and says, they will never learn, will they? Thankfully enough, the story doesn't end there. There's some redemptive element to that story of the Sneetches because the Sneetches come to recognize how idiotic, how silly, how profoundly misled and misguided their idolatry was. They said, you know what, intrinsic human righteousness, they don't say it like that, but, you know, intrinsic human righteousness and this kind of symbol of righteousness, this star on our belly is absolute idolatry we will actually learn to treat each other with or without the stars on our bellies. Friends, all of us have been star-belly snitches. Perhaps some of us still are. What is a green star on our belly anyway? Why do you use that silly idol as a security symbol of ultimate righteousness? What is it for us? that is the intrinsic human righteousness that can only ultimately be an idol for destruction and emptiness. We then maybe, for many people throughout human civilization, it's material prosperity as protection. Let's listen to another interesting person, though not as uh, perhaps a little better known, but not as funny. His name is Karl Marx. Here in this regard, he is spot on In this essay called The Jewish Question, this is what he says. Money is the jealous God of Israel before whom no other God may exist. Money is the general self-sufficient value of everything. Hence, it has robbed the whole world, the human world, as well as nature, of its proper worth. Did you hear what he said? He said, you know what? Money has become the all-consuming deity, God of all things, of all people. Therefore, what money has done is suck the bone and marrow of our own scheme, proper scheme of valuation. How do you evaluate people? How do you give a sense of value to people? We often do it by asking ourselves or finding out that person's net worth is or whatever. Okay, I'm worth $35,000 a year. That person over here is $350,000 a year. That person over there is $3.5 million a year. And I bet you in the way that we look at each other with these three kind of, you know, different income levels, there may be, just maybe, a way that we actually let that scheme of valuation influence the way we look at somebody else. That's exactly what Marx is saying. Guess what? Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said that, you know what? You cannot worship 
God and mammon or money at the same time as the ultimate value giver, ultimate meaning giver to you. And Marx concludes by saying money is the alienated essence, not proper essence, but alienated essence of man's labor and life. And this alien essence dominates them as he worships it. So the true essence, Marx even knew that the true essence of the human person is not money, yet that's what we are, that's what we have become. And he says that's what we worship, but that's not the way we should be because he emphatically calls money as the alienated, estranged essence. Then it does behoove us as a community to ask the question, what is the true essence of the human person? What is it that makes us truly righteous? Is it something intrinsic or does it have to come from outside of us? Jesus tells us that what we hunger and thirst after is truly of great importance. What are we really hungering after? What do we hunger and thirst after believing that they will ultimately satisfy and confer upon us the thing called righteousness? Intrinsic human righteousness, that is, our sense of worth, dignity, freedom, identity, constructed apart from taking that as a gift, will ultimately be an act of idol worship, idol making. Calvin, in his institute, said the human beings are the most wonderful idol factories. We know how to make idols so well, very, very invidiously and insidiously and ingeniously, we do. Augustine says this in his, uh, says to his God in his classic confessions, he says, Thou, O Lord, hast created us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you and you alone. We all have the desire for thirst and hunger. We do. I thirst right now for some water, and that's, that will be satisfied about 20 minutes later when I go outside or when I have this Lord's Supper. I mean, so we all have desires for various things, for that's fundamental to human survival. Jesus used that reality concept to drive home the point that God alone can ultimately satisfy. Do you remember the commercial that may still be on, Sprite commercial, right? Obey your thirst, right? With LeBron James and Drake and Eddie Wong and others were kind of featured in these commercials. And the commercial goes right for the jugular and says, dude, obey your thirst. There's a connection between your thirst and you must satisfy that quench that thirst. For there's nothing else you can do. But then the question does come back to us and saying, what am I really thirsting after? What am I really thirsting after deep down in my existence? What do we want? We want significance. We want people to love us. We want, be, we want to be liked. We want to matter. These are very, very important and divinely kind of ordained things for us. But they cannot be the ultimate giver of meaning. Money, fame, prestige are important. But they cannot ultimately be the giver of true significance. You know, this story by Franz Kafka uh, called Metamorphosis has this really, really interesting beginning. The the main character is Grigor Samsa, and he goes to sleep one night as a human being, wakes up the next as a giant insect, right? I don't know if you've read that story, but Kafka has that kind of powerful existentialist kind of pathos to his stories, and he kind of wakes up one morning as a giant insect. Guess what? You can't go to work anymore because people are freaking out. And your, Grigor Samsa had parents, mom and dad, and his sister Greta, and they were living together, and guess what? Grigor was the main, main provider for income. But now as a giant insect, he cannot go to work. 
So he's a huge dilemma. What do we do with Grigor? The parents really kind of have this dilemma. The sister feeds him, but, you know, it's the improper food that she's feeding him because he cannot take the human food anymore. And you know what? Grigor really longs for and thirsts after and hungers after is that communion. He wants to have that communion, that relationship that has been tragically severed because of him becoming a vermin, an insect. And the story is this, that he desires to have that. And, and to me, my takeaway of the meaning from metamorphosis is this, that human beings are created with a desire for significant communion, relationship. And when severed that, severing that, no matter how much you have or how little you have, you will end up denying yourself of the fundamental essence, therefore leading you to the starvation and death. And that's what happens to Grigor Samsa. This giant insect dies out of the sense of alienation and loneliness. See, intrinsic human righteousness as idolatry is simply this. As a result of this cataclysmic fall, all human efforts to construct a sense of identity of righteousness will ultimately end up as a Tower of Babel. As the book of Genesis talks about this Tower of Babel, that's what it's going to be. Rather than ending on this kind of a, a dour note, we must go to the gospel. If the first part of the sermon was law, then we need to go to the gospel. That leads me to the second and last point of the sermon, alien divine righteousness as identity. Righteousness was understood to be a relational and covenantal term for the first century listeners. We all knew that, right? So for the people of Israel, they understood righteousness, not something that you kind of have it of your own, that you got it. It is always understood as a relational thing. I am righteous only because I'm in this covenantal relationship with God. It is not something that you have it out of your own possession as if that's all you, you will have and you don't need anyone else in sustaining and supporting you. For the people of Israel, they understood because of their history because of this salvation event called Exodus, when God brings the people of Israel out of this land of slavery and bondage, of century of everything said that has become untrue in the event of Exodus. And they understood that, you know what, God gives them the law, both the, both the first time and also in the second time in Deuteronomy, and God makes it very clear, I am the Lord your God, who has what? delivers you, brought you up out of the land of slavery. So what God is going to do every time when God speaks to the people of Israel is to reestablish their identity, reaffirm who God is. I'm not some kind of boring or bored deity up there who needed to create this world in order to be God. God says, no, 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 no. I am your God who has purchased you. I am your God who has entered into this covenantal relationality with you. And for you, the only way that you can sustain your identity is to know that my righteousness is always going to be relational and covenantal. So there was, but you know what? There's, for this people, there was an experience of desperation right now. When Jesus came around the first century, they didn't have national security or sovereignty or autonomy, did they? Theirs was a sense of dejection after the kingdom had been destroyed by the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans. Theirs was therefore a deep and passionate yearning, in fact, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You get that? So Jesus is tapping into the deep nerve ending of the people of Israel when Jesus says, you know, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. 
Now, Jesus' lifetime did not bring about this filling of this righteousness in terms of national security and sovereignty restored to the people of Israel. Do you remember when Jesus is resurrected, what did the disciples ask? Lord, are you at this time going to what? Restore the kingdom to Israel. They understood in this nationalistic and ethnic sense, and Jesus actually globalizes and universalizes and and says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that, but you're going to be my witnesses from here on out to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He says, you have been so myopic, so ethnocentric. I want you to look far beyond this world of yours and see the marvelous thing that I'm going to do. We need to see this verse, indeed all of the Sermon on the Mount, in and through the life and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he does. He says, you know what? I am going to be your righteousness. I am going to be the one who will quench your thirst. I am the one who will give you that bread from heaven that will keep you fully satisfied while at the same time creating this longing for more. See, the Hebrew word sadik or the Greek word dikaiosune both contain a vertical as well as horizontal axis of meaning. So the righteousness that people of Israel hungered and thirsted after, the same thing that many prophets in the Old Testament decried in its absence among the people of Israel, was righteousness that was seen as a gracious gift from Yahweh, which then made the people of God, the Israelites, more gracious. Let me say that again. Grace, if true, will make the recipients gracious. It'll have the horizontal as well as the vertical kind of consequences. Vertical consequence is that you have a restored relationship with God. But then the horizontal consequence is that if you truly have experienced that sanctifying and justifying grace, that means you become more gracious. That means, put plainly, Christians ought to be nice people. Not in the behavioristic sense, but really deeply caring about creation, deeply caring about the creatures, be they widows, be they aliens, be they orphans, be they poor or rich, that there is a covenantal sense of commitment that you have because it is that alien righteousness that has has given you an identity, true identity. You are not your own, St. Paul says. You've been bought at a price, therefore, sanctify, honor the Lord with your life, with your body. Remember what the, Lord, what the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13? My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Think about it like this. God says, you know what? You are actually going after things, you know, with these broken cisterns. Imagine this thing that we have used for baptism. Imagine this actually at the bottom had a hole about the size of my fist. What will happen to it? Can we use this as a... I don't think so. I mean, I guess you can kind of somehow get your palm wet and sprinkle it a little bit, but not in the way that is kind of liberally kind of, you know, expressing the death and life in God that baptism actually signifies and communicates. See, if we have this broken cistern, what we will have is we'll be perpetually desiring for more, not really getting any kind of satisfaction at all. And God says, my people have gone after these broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And therefore, they're all in this kind of cycle ad infinitum of just sense of desperation, sense of desiring for more, but never really having it. As one commentator puts it, the word righteousness implies a relationship with the Lord, namely holiness, and at the same time a relationship with human beings, namely recognition of the rights and dignity of each person, and especially those despised and the oppressed, the aliens, the widows, and the orphans. That is true shalom. 
true peace that the people of Israel desire, the prophets of old have written about, that both Simeon and Mary both sung about, was that how God was going to restore God's shalom. And that's going to happen through that alien righteousness that has become enfleshed in our world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see the same concept of filling and thirst in this truly beautiful story in John 4, the story of the Samaritan woman. She says in John 4, 11, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. Where can you get this living water? Jesus answered it, I will give you this water. I am the living water. Whoever drinks the water I give him or her shall never thirst. And further down in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the living bread. The bread I give you will deeply satisfy, truly fill you. Then why is it called alien righteousness as identity? Due to our constant and nearly incorrigible efforts to drink water with broken cisterns, it creates a further frenzied longing. Frenzied because we can only get just a tiny bit of it, so we are not satisfied when we pursue righteousness from within without God. Yet when we recognize our own inability to thirst and hunger for the right thing, true true righteousness, and receive that alien righteousness from the one in whose incarnation experienced true hunger and thirst, then we are filled and then we are actually recreated to long for, thirst after, hunger after the thing that will truly satisfy. Think of it this way, my friends, and I'm almost done. In the beginning of his ministry, what did Jesus experience? Jesus experienced intense hunger. Forty days and 40 nights of fasting. The gospel writer Matthew tersely calls, calls it Jesus was hungry. That's probably the understatement of the entire gospel, isn't it? After 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was truly human. Did you know that? We shouldn't be docetists who believe that Jesus somehow just showed up as a human. No, he was fully human. Do you realize that Jesus had to learn to walk? Do you realize that Jesus had to learn to speak? Right? I mean, many of us think that Jesus came from Mary's womb and started speaking perfect Aramaic. No. He had to speak. He had to learn to speak. Luther says this in this beautiful way when he's uh, preaching on the Magnificat. He says, you know, the, the hand of Jesus that created, that fashioned the entire cosmos, entire universe, is now held in the arms of this Jewish country maiden. That the one whose word is the, you know, who is the eternal word of God had to learn to speak. Did you know that when he went to kind of grammar school, he had to learn these lessons? He didn't have perfect knowledge, instant recall at every time. You see, Jesus had to go through the process of what it means to be a human, just like all of us, just like these two, you know, four children who are dedicated today and baptized today. Jesus went through twice. Did you know that? He was circumcised and he was baptized. He went through the rites and rituals of kind of transferring one's identity and surrendering unto God in order to show us what it means. And this is his humiliation, as theologians call this period of Jesus' abode among us as a period of humiliation. He humbled himself. Humbling means humiliating. Jesus went through all of that to give us that alien righteousness, to make it real. And as we, will about, as we are about to participate in the Lord's Supper, what this is, is that it's a covenant seal. It seals for us who Christ is and whose we are. And that righteousness will create within us that further longing for who he is. You see, in the end of his ministry upon the cross, what did he say from his experience? He said, I thirst. 
Yet the irony is that the one who had the crazy audacity to say that I can give you the drink that helps you obey your true thirst died of thirst, and the one who said that he is the bread from heaven lived in relative material poverty. Yet with the eyes of faith, we see that he's the one who will truly fill us. Many of us love this hymn, I think, on Christ the solid rock, right? It goes something like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Someone did a parody of this hymn, lampooning the way that we are trying to run after intrinsic human righteousness as well as alien divine righteousness, and it goes like this. On Christ the solid rock, rock I stand, all other grounds can help me too. So we want to hold on to Jesus. I mean, none of us are stupid enough to say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. We want to hold on to that. But then we somehow want to hold on to the other sinking sands in case things don't pan out. And Jesus says, you know what? You got to do it or not. And there is that Pascalian wager, this kind of bet that God says, take this bet because I am the one who can, I am the only one who can give you the sense of identity of hungering and thirsting after the right things, therefore arriving at this alien righteousness that will truly fill you and give you a sense of being and meaning. May the Lord of all good and perfect desires redirect and rekindle our desires to hunger and thirst, not after green stars on our bellies, but rather after the one who hungered and thirsted to fill us. Only to him be the glory. Amen. Let's pray.